Sholem Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, the podcast of the Yiddish Book Center. I'm Susan Bronson, the Center's Executive Director, and I'm here today to talk with Macy Hart, President of the Institute of Southern Jewish Life. The Institute is currently running one of the Yiddish Book Center's tent programs, Tent the South. Tent, Encounters with Modern Jewish Culture, is a new initiative of the Center, and it's a series of free, immersive workshops for 20-somethings interested in exploring the connections between Jewishness and modern culture. I'll be talking to Macy about the Institute, its unique role in fostering Jewish life in the South, and its participation in the TENT program. Macy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'd like to begin by asking exactly what is the Institute of Southern Jewish Life? What is its history and mission, and what does it do today? Um, that's a lot of questions to answer in the 20 seconds that you've given me to give this <laughs> answer. Um, the Institute came out of uh, an understanding of the fact that there's so many issues facing the Jewish world today, but I'm going to uh, define it down to the national scope where we are spending millions and millions and millions of dollars trying to put band-aids on issues that we have not gone to the root causes of. So the Institute um, recognized that there are many congregations in this country who have no rabbinic leadership. They're too small or some of the rabbinic uh, world doesn't want to go to where there are not uh, gigantic Jewish communities, uh, um, in other words, urbanization of the population. Um, and there are young people today growing up with no rabbinic role models, no positive role models in the Jewish world um, that can show them what it can be when they get to the next place that they're going. Seventy-five percent of us move. Mm -hmm. We don't live where we were raised. So... Uh, we started seeing this continuation of the lack of Jewish education and the, co the constant condemnation of the teachers and the programs and so on, and yet this Jewish world that we live in in America would never tolerate an educational system in their public or private school systems that mirrors what we have done in the Jewish world with every single congregation coming up with their own, quote, Sunday school. Right. And uh, and um, Sunday school, some people call it supplemental education, some people call it Sunday school, Hebrew school, whatever it is, it's the, it's the program of a congregation. Well, most of those folks don't have a background in curriculum development, and uh, a lot of people just hated Sunday school. So we looked at the root cause of that, and I'll talk more about that in, in a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, we have an itinerant rabbinic program where our rabbi of our staff goes and serves congregations in a 13-state area that have no rabbis. There's no reason for our rabbi to go to a congregation right. that has a rabbi. Um, and a lot of those congregations over the years did all the right things. They had women's groups. They had men's groups. They had a Sunday school. They were involved in their communities, but they didn't get a pension so when they were all of a sudden too small or not desirable as a place for professionals to go and spend three years, four years, or five years, they're floundering. Mm -hmm. But they're very, very, very committed to their Jewish life. And you have people not holding on but living the life that they wanted. And they are raising children still. And um, those kids needed to be exposed to what can be in the Jewish world. So when they get to the New Yorks and the L.A.s and the Chicago's and the Atlanta's and places like that, they basically will say, where do I sign up? As opposed to, if you want me, 
come find me, which is the reality of today. So we have uh, created this system where we're, we have a community engagement department doing, um, doing conflict resolution and um, read, lead, succeed. We want to get third, we want children in the public school sector and in the world to be reading on a third grade level by the time they're leaving, leaving the third grade. We already know the result if we don't. Mm -hmm. We have a um, conflict resolution for peer mediation, we started in one 100% uh, African-American school, and now we're in not only more schools and high schools as well, we're in more states, and we've just hired our first two-year fellow to start helping us export that into our 13 states. We have an arts and culture department because it was great um, to have exposure as a kid. My my family as an example and my wife Susan's family um, made us go to museums and symphonies and stuff like that when we were growing up and so when we got to our marriage and we got to raising our kids we already were involved in symphony and opera and theater and because we had been exposed to it. Well the same thing goes for Jewish life. So we have an arts and culture department and we just uh, recently put an Israeli musician in 106 concerts in 12 states in six and a half months. And we did it in places like churches and schools and synagogues and Jewish community centers. And it brings lots of people, not just Jewish people, mm -hmm. to uh, a program like this. We have a museum department, actually, that's the group that's working with this tent um, opportunity that y'all have provided. And we have a history department, and the history department has created the Encyclopedia of Southern Jewish Communities, um, and it is online. It is online and viewable, and it's researched internationally and gets lots and lots of hits. So, it's a virtual synagogue, uh, and that's the model we decided to use because that's where a majority of collective Jews are. If you want to go try to find a nucleus of people. Mm -hmm. Affiliation rate in smaller communities is extraordinarily high. Affiliation rate in the urban areas is extraordinarily low. Now, you mentioned a, a I think, 13-state area. So what is your territory, so to speak? We start Texas and Oklahoma, and we go across to Virginia. We do not work in South Florida, mm -hmm. but we do work with the Panhandle. So the 13 states are the southern states that we, we identified as southern states. There's no rule as to right. what are southern <laughs> states, so to speak. People like to uh, maybe uh, assign it to the Confederacy. That has no, no place in our thinking. We're talking about an area that has a similar story, how people got there, what were their businesses you know, in the 1800s and 1900s. Mm -hmm. We actually go back 300s in, to the, in 300 years in um, parts of the South. The Jewish community, you mean? Jewish community, back 300 yes. years. So you mentioned that a lot of young people, you're going to these smaller communities because you want the young people, when they leave and go elsewhere, to have a connection to Jewish life and to be able to continue that connection rather than wind up in a big city with no background and no, no affiliation and no understanding exactly. of their Jewish roots. Exactly. So in, what are you seeing in these communities over time? I guess you've been doing this for a while. Um, do you find that if, if, if many of these people move to the cities, are these Jewish communities remaining in these smaller areas over time? Or 
do, do your activities shift in terms of locale based on how the population is changing in the South? <coughs> that makes that, sense. No, it's yeah. a great question. Mm -hmm. um, it gives me an opportunity to explain that we're not just working with small communities. Mm -hmm. We're also um, we're on a mission to try to get large congregations to adopt or partner with smaller congregations. Right. Um, there's a whole program um, with that. We're also trying to get large congregations to give us for a weekend or two weekends a year or a week a year of their clergy coming and we will put them in congregations that don't have rabbis. It's, um, it's fabulous for the communities that get these wonderful rabbinic or cantorial professional visits. And it's also, I think, uh, stimulating to those who come from the urban areas to serve these smaller communities but at the same time, it connects larger communities to the responsibility that they have because when you really look at the demographics of a congregation, their growth is not from inside the membership. It's from people moving to those communities and joining right? or not joining because, you know, there's two sides to this. The ones that join are ones that are still looking for Jewish life because they were involved in it. The ones that are seeking nothing at the moment but doing their own thing, which is what the Jewish world seems to be in a panic about with the 2030s and 40s. We're just trying to make sure that just like music, uh, baseball is a metaphor I've used before. Uh, it starts with t-ball and it grows up to professional ball. So if there's an exposure, people will look for it. I did that uh, coming from my background. My wife Susan did it from her background. We, when we moved to um, to Mississippi, when we came, when I came back after college, and then Susan and I married, um, and she finished college in Mississippi, we joined the symphony, we joined the opera, we joined the um, the theater series, and we joined the temple in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and we joined the temple in Jackson because we both came out of that, and because I had mentioned earlier, our parents had tortured us by when we were kids taking us and making us go to symphonies and things right. like that. So the idea is, and the, the Institute was never designed to save Southern Jewelry. It was designed to do several things, and one of which was is to give people exposure, even the adult world, exposure to things that they cannot get through the conventional means that are out there. Um, which means the movements don't have the resources and these congregations are paying dues to those movements, and but there's no resources for them to be served on any sort of regular basis. And we thought there needs to be something put back in these communities. Mm -hmm. So we'll do these um, collectives where we um, pool resources of small and large communities and we'll bring a major speaker or musician or something and we'll put them on a road trip and on that road trip, they'll be in small places and large places, and the larger communities may have paid more money, and the smaller communities may have paid a smaller amount, but we work out the expenses and the travel and people pool, and it works. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, in small, small towns, they have the same opportunities for Jewish intellectual stimulation that the large communities have, and usually that they take for granted. So for us, 
the idea was to provide an ongoing holistic approach to Jewish life, raise the level of expectation so that when they get to the communities they're going to retire in or that they're going to move to Mm -hmm. after college, they're just making the next step transition. Mm -hmm. That's a key to what we're doing. Now, I know you involve a lot of young people in your work. You have a fellowship program. Much of the work that actually gets done is done by young people. Who are these fellows, and what exactly do they do for the organization? Well, one of the things that we decided, and I'm going to go back to the education program. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so what we did is we hired, we, um, we, we didn't hire. We took a group of educators across movements and practitioners in the field and graduate students, and um, pretty much locked them in a room, you might say, for a year and said, don't come out (laughs) until you come up with what we can agree on, that we want every first grader to know before they go to the second and third, all the way up spiraling through high school and make no halakhic editorial. Don't have anything to say about how many days you celebrate this holiday or that holiday, and it's got to be a spiral, so Mm -hmm. it's one leads to the next. In my secular world, example of that is, is in the first grade, you and I went to different schools together. And I'm so much older than you, but we still (laughs) went to different schools together. And we learned basically to count in the first grade, which prepared us to be able to add in the second, Mm -hmm. subtract, multiply, divide, all the way up through higher math to take a college entrance exam because of the emphasis on the Jewish communities wanting their kids to get a good education so they can get into a good college. And if we want to have a good Jewish education, then we need to have a lot of pooled minds over one basic type of, this is what first graders, second graders, all the way up need to know and get all these minds in and not say, and this is how you teach it. Leave that to the professionals who can. But so many of our teachers today are moms and dads or people like me, a Judaic illiterate, Mm -hmm. because I'm a product of a mom and dad who are merchants who knew nothing about spiraling other than the four children. I'm one of four siblings, and we were on the back seat driving uh, 160 miles round trip every Sunday to get to Sunday school for our parents to be among our teachers. The only thing our parents ever understood about spiraling was how behavior on the back seat spiraled out of control (laughs) because somebody was going to touch somebody. Mm -hmm. So what we did is... We, we accomplished that goal of having a core, 10-piece mm-hmm. core, across the movements, and then we set about to write a lesson plan by lesson plan script from early childhood all the way through high school. And then this is where the young people come in, because in America we started historically with itinerant rabbis, because the Jewish community was not large enough or centered enough to have seminaries in the mm-hmm. beginning, so we had European European rabbis come into the states, and they would make their living by traveling from one community to another until communities were large enough to be able to employ somebody. But nobody really ever put itinerant educators on the road, and that's what I meant earlier when I said going back to root causes. So since we couldn't find a good reason why not to put um, uh, itinerant educators on the road, we created literally what would be likened to the uh, Jewish uh, Teach for America. Mm-hmm. The, the um, number of Jewish kids graduating from college who are looking to do something, service learning of some sort, 
or to be involved <clears throat> before they go to graduate school, and there's a high percentage that go to graduate school. So we decided to create these role models, and so we started with two of these itinerant uh, education fellowships under the direction of a master educator on our curriculum. We started in four states with 12 synagogues. We're now in all 13 states. Our two fellows have grown to nine. There are 34 former fellows, and they're a who's who. When you look at where they are, where they are now, how many have become rabbis or professional Jewish educators or in the communal service world, it's fabulous. And so each one of these fellows oversees anywhere from six to eight communities. Reform, conservative, unaffiliated, large, small, with professional, without a professional, and depending on the congregation, depends on what services that particular fellow will provide for that community. So if it's a community without a rabbi, they're going to conduct services and wow. do a Torah study. If it's a congregation with a full-time rabbi, there's no need for them to conduct services, but they'll do a devar. And in that, on the other side of the audience of that fellow doing a devar in front of uh, um, a congregational group, you see little kids looking to that person saying, gee, I want to do that. And, mm -hmm. that. and that has already happened because we're 15 years old. And then in addition to that, what you're doing is our smallest school is one student. And we have several that are two, three, five. Mm -hmm. And our largest school is in the 300s. Wow. And we have kids on the same basic page. So just like in the secular world, if you happen to move with kids, if you had a if you had a third, fifth, and seventh grade uh, children and you were living in Boston and you moved to Texas or you moved to Wyoming, your kids would be in the third, fifth, and seventh grade. They may be a little ahead or a little behind, but they would be on par with socially and academically with most things because of this um, agreed-upon math, science, English, and history that the secular world, whether it's a private school or a public school, has done to get people ready for a college entrance exam and to go to college and to right. be successful. So this is the system we created with our education piece. So with the large congregations, we have their professional voices now with our 5,000-page, grade-by-grade, scripted wow. lesson plan. And a large school doesn't have to use our script, but let's keep the fifth graders on the same page. Let's keep the third graders on the same page. And the congregations that are smaller with lay teachers or moms and dads, like my mom and dad, bless their hearts for enduring these four children, um, you have somebody working with them on a weekly basis on the lesson plan. So if they use the script, there'll be at least a minimal common body of Jewish knowledge. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, um, everybody's out there doing their own thing, which has resulted in condemnation, as I mentioned earlier. So these fellows are post-college. They're just finishing school. They're bright, vibrant, young, um, they come from all walks of life. We have traditional. We have um, all the movements. We have a couple that are rabbinic students who have deferred their beginning to take this fellowship. And the fellowship itself has gained a, a lot of notoriety. 
Um, and as I mentioned earlier also, we've just hired our first fellow in the community engagement department, and we, we feel sure that in years to come, as we get funding for the delivery of that program, um, that it'll rival in number the education department because again we're serving 13 states wow that's exciting actually very exciting <laughs> yeah it kind of keeps one busy i'm sure it does uh, so i'm going to shift gears a little bit sure. um to talk about a, a really interesting uh, subject in jewish and in southern history many many know that the jews played an important role in the civil rights movement um, and that we are now marking the 50th, or we just did mark the 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer. Um, what, what is Freedom Summer exactly, and how has the Institute uh, been involved? Because it is such a part of the Southern Jewish experience <coughs> in so many ways, um, the um, Institute was deeply involved. There's been, it's, this has been a two-year piece, because last year there was the Freedom Ride beginning, and we, d we were very much involved in the Freedom Rider piece. The, the big effort was this year, though, because this was the year when so many things, this is the 50th anniversary of when so many pivotal things happened. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, our community engagement department was deeply involved in planning programming, and especially for the Jewish community, we sent out... Uh, information to a lot of our collegial groups and we planned programming um, for them while they were here. We got a small grant um, to do some programming uh, so that when people got here we could have some of the kinds of speakers and interaction. So there was a lot of mingling with the veterans and people who were here revisiting a Mississippi that was not the Mississippi that was unwelcoming for some, mm -hmm. meaning, meaning some of Mississippi was unwelcoming, not all, because we're not all the same, but it was a completely different Mississippi that did welcome these folks back. Fifty years later. Fifty years mm -hmm. later, and many have been coming back on somewhat of a regular basis and have been a part of watching the change. So as bad as things were, that was one of those things where it was so bad that obviously someone had to take a leadership role um, in moving forward, and that's what happened across the United States in 50 years ago. And I'm actually proud to say that Mississippi has been um, a, a great example for things that can be done to make change. It doesn't mean that we don't have a long way to go any more than it doesn't mean that in the urban areas of the Northeast and the West Coast and the Midwest, we're all dealing with issues that should have been corrected a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. And we're all still dealing with those issues. But Mississippi has taken a strong statement going forward. We actually have the highest per capita number of African-American elected officials of any state in the country. So for us to be a part of the program and to be a major part of the programming initiative that took place during that period this past summer was a, um, a great opportunity for us. Continue that important role. Right. Um, so as I noted earlier, I'm visiting here because um, the Institute is running one of our tent programs, which we were really excited about because it's in some ways... Um, different from the other tent programs we're, we are running, which are more 
explicitly culturally based. We have comedy, we have food, we have uh, a variety of, of theater we've had, etc. And this is, is a different sort of theme. We, it, you called it Tent the South. And um, uh, what inspired you to participate in this? And you know, tell us a little bit about the Tent the South program and, and how it relates, how you see it as important in relating to your mission. The, um, the opportunity to introduce um, a number of people to what really is the Jewish South as opposed to what is the stereotypical image of the Jewish South. Oh, really? I didn't know there were any Jews there. Oh, have you lived in fear all your life? All these sort of questions <laughs> that I get all the time because I travel greatly, as do the fellows. One of the things that I've asked every one of our staff members that we have hired and, or even interviewed over the years, one of the first questions I ask is, tell me, do you have any preconceived notions of what to expect here? We've had parents who were very concerned about their children applying to come to an, a Jewish organization in Mississippi who've maybe, maybe never even traveled, as we say uh, fondly, outside their zip code. Mm -hmm. And so most of our fellows are not, actually very few have ever come from the South. And they're from great schools all over the country, and they are life-changing experiences. So we, every time we have a chance to bring or help a group do a tour of the Southern Jewish experience, which also includes the secular experience as well because it's a part of our culture. Mm -hmm. So um, we wanted to do this because it was another opportunity for us to show a group of highly energetic and inquisitive young people in their 20s a view of a society that has worked hard to not only maintain their Judaism, but to see the contribution that Jews made in these communities as uh, they have survived or thrived in certain communities. And a quick example would be my own family. My grandfather was an immigrant. He was 12 when he landed in Philadelphia. Now, I know you're going to think uh, Mississippi, but I'm talking about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is where he landed. Uh -huh. And he peddled down to Mississippi where his job was going to be. And he went to work for the, uh, the friend, cousin, and after a few years bought into the store, then bought half the store, and then bought all of the store. And at a time when unemployment was going to be very high because the human being was coming out of the agricultural field being replaced by machines, mm -hmm. my grandfather convinced a major manufacturing company, he convinced the city, the county, and the state to provide uh, economic incentives, and a plant that made sportswear opened up in Winona, Mississippi, and uh, created in this part, I don't remember whether it was 200 or 400 jobs, but I do remember as a little boy them presenting at the opening ribbon cutting, my grandfather and the mayor, uh, the first shirts produced at that plant. And then I remembered when my grandfather died when I was 13 years old, that every, every store in that town closed from 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock wow. in the afternoon in tribute to my grandfather. We were the only Jewish family in the town. We were 80 miles from the synagogue. Our store closed on the high holy days. No teacher ever gave an exam to one of the Hart children when there was a high holy day because we were 
<clears throat> we were a part of the community. When I graduated high school, a rabbi came to deliver the commencement address, and that was the first time a rabbi had been in that school, um, maybe even ever, but, and it was because um, the community welcomed to have a rabbi because in a Bible Belt, a highly religious community, having a rabbi would have been an honor and a treat. And so we lived peacefully for the most part. I'm not saying that there wasn't discrimination in some places, but there wasn't anywhere I lived because I grew up never having one anti-Semitic moment. And as I said, we were well known in the in the community because we participated in the community like everybody else. So for these young people traveling, we're going to hear, I had no idea, quote. Yes. And that's one of the things we do. Last year, the, um, the Lair House Institute out of uh, California did our southern trip, and it was an eye-opener for many of these uh, highly educated, retired folks. And we've had congregational groups. We've had museum and cultural groups um, do exactly what y'all are doing. But the opportunity for us to actually, uh, to be honest, to uh, partner with the Yiddish Book Center and the legendary uh, organization that that is, and some comparisons have been made over the years to these two, was a, was a no-brainer for us. We, we like the association and very much appreciate being included in this opportunity. Well, we are thrilled that you have been part of this. and. Um, I think there is quite a bit in common between the Yiddish Book Center and the Institute uh, in terms of our overall mission and our goals. Even though we have different subject matters that we focus on, we have quite a bit in common. So it's really a thrill to be here, and I want to thank you, Macy Hart, President of the Institute of Southern Jewish Life, and look forward to many more conversations. I hope you've inspired some people today to learn more about what you do. Um, you've been listening to Tune In, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, please, please visit our website, www.yiddishbookcenter.org. Our producer is Sarah Bleichfeld. I'm Susan Bronson. Zymir Stark und Gesund. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon. Mm-hmm.